0: Hello, welcome to another episode of Pod for the Planet. This special interview episode is dropping as a quick preview for our third ever late night show this Tuesday, October 22nd at 7 p.m. at Olive Ridley's in Plattsburgh, New York. We're going to have some very special guests, one of whom is Brian Gilmore, a housing rights lawyer, professor at Michigan State University, New York Times author and a critically acclaimed poet. Please enjoy my conversation with Brian Gilmore and join us this Tuesday at Olive Ridley's for Late Night for the Planet. So you're a lawyer and a teacher at Michigan State University. Yes. So, um, of course, uh, and your focus is in housing issues.
1: Oh yeah, that's that's my like teaching and uh, scholarship and writing and things like that. Research, I should say. So it's been like that for a while. I've been I've done other things, but I've done other things as a lawyer and teaching, but. Housing has been mm-hmm. the main focus for like about fifteen years hard now. <laughs> been fifteen about-
0: years. So from your from your experience with that, uh what are some of the what are like the five to ten biggest issues that we see today? What are the heavy hitters that you have right. to deal with?
1: <laughs> okay, so I've put this in the context first and this could be a this could be a heavy hitter, but this is probably the number one heavy hitter really for me is the United States doesn't really have a housing policy. That's that's probably the number one problem that the country has. It doesn't have like goals that it sets for itself for housing. And that wasn't always the case. Like in the 1930s and the 1940s, they did pass some really big bills and passed into law that like the housing act of 1937 The Housing Act of 1949, regardless of how successful they were, these these laws had goals like we're going to find affordable housing or we're going to find homes for this many Americans. We're going to build this many houses. We're going to, you know, it just just set a certain policy direction for the country. So they don't have they don't have that anymore. That is that was drained away. And so that has resulted in a lot of different things that are now serious problems. Of course, one is the lack of affordable housing. I mean, you could even say there's a lack of housing in general, but there's a lack of affordable housing in almost every jurisdiction. I think I think the latest study by the National Low 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 Income Housing Coalition is that it's most of the counties in the United States don't have enough affordable housing. You could also, I mean, also the byproduct of that, which I guess would be like a number three would be, okay. So you name that bleeds into, should I say breeds evictions. We have like over 2 million evictions like last year or any year. There were like 2 million evictions in the United States, which is far too many evictions. And that's, that's, that's housing policy but that's also that's, that's housing policy lack of affordable housing no housing policy but that's also deals with things like low wages um and things like that 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 are there's no control over and and you know even things as far out as labor organizing which if we had stronger labor organiz- organizations then more people would would have more job stability but they don't and they don't have they don't get paid enough, and they don't have job stability, so that's another one that comes up of course, if you have a lot of evictions, you have more homeless people so that's that's these things all tie into each other, so that's kind of like the number four you have too many individuals who are homeless and probably too many children who are homeless there's a lot of homeless families there's there's a typical homeless that people like to point out, which is usually an individual who, who might be mentally ill and might be on the street for has been on the street for a long time, but that's not what we're really talking about. We're talking about people who probably have a job who are basically living in shelters, bouncing around from shelter, maybe the families because they can't really find a place to live anything like that. So this, that's, that's a, uh, Another one that's on top of everything. Uh, then you probably have, and see, like I said, all of these things kind of ties each other. Is we have a the United States has a free market, basically housing, a free housing market, meaning you know, like it's free,
0: mm-hmm.
1: laissez faire, shall we say? I don't know if I, if they use that term anymore or neoliberal market, where the market is allowed to do what it to just take whatever direction it wants to take and and let the chips fall where they may, the market will solve all these problems. The market doesn't really solve these problems. So th- that's the other problem that comes out of that is, like I said, would be like a number five would be, we have a, the market is not regulated to the sufficient extent at all. And this is everything down to rent, to, um, I mean, like things like rent control, which used to be huge at one point. Rent control was a big deal at some point that the rent control is barely existing anymore. And uh other things like when you get down to rentals, because the United States has a lot of rentals. People think like everybody owns, but they're United States is also a country of renter renters. They're a country of owners, but also renters. So we have unregulated, unregulated regions of the country where there's little, if any regulation of the, of the property. There's no, there's no check on how the conditions are. There's no follow-up. The area where I am, which is probably typical of a lot of areas, has a p- pretty big landing, which which my clinic covers. It's probably over 100,000 people there. And they have like six, I think they have six or seven inspectors for all the rental properties that are down there. And it got so bad that they couldn't do follow-ups. Somebody would call you or or I, if we were tenants, we could call. They would come out and do an inspection, but they couldn't do a follow-up. They couldn't come back. So they relied on the landlords to basically file affidavits saying, yes, the place, I did all the repairs, the place is good now. But that was, they come to find out that this is usually not true. They just were filing that because they knew that that would get the inspectors. To go away, kind of thing. So we have unregulated housing markets all across the country. So those right there, I think that's about six off the top of my head are come to mind. And that's not to that's not to say that's the only things, because you still have issues dealing with discrimination against individuals on the mm-hmm. basis of race and and disability. And then you have this, you have things like. Uh, discrimination against people based on class but there is no united states this is not a country that recognizes economic rights unlike some countries around the world many countries around the world especially developed highly developed countries do recognize uh economic rights of individuals i know i said a lot there but that's i guess that's uh kind of like a uh I mean, a rainbow of the various things that I've seen in my teaching and also in the law lawyer things that I've done for like the last 20 years or so.
0: So you've talked a lot about uh, like social and economic uh, conditions uh, for housing. Um, I am an environmental studies major. My focus is in environmental issues with this. Have, gotcha. What are some of the main environmental Housing problems, right? That, that's, we, that you have seen primarily, right,
1: Yeah, that's a that's an excellent question, and I probably will have to sh- stick to the, uh, you know, the what I know firsthand. But there mm-hmm. there are some things that I've I have researched and things like that. I mean, you definitely have this issue still in a lot of jurisdictions across the country of uh, the poor and the people of color live in zones which are more environmentally dangerous to them. I mean, probably disproportionately. I would say definitely here, that's the case. People have checked that out. You also have things like what happened in Flint, Michigan, where, I mean, that was a... It it isn't looked upon as a housing disaster, but but it is like a housing disaster because of what happened with the water there. People consume the water in their own homes. And the city became over a period of time, over just a matter of weeks, became a place where their lives were in danger from consuming water in their own houses. That's something that our clinic uh, was involved in. in And just a little bit, not that much, but we saw that up close and personal because we went to Flint, and individuals were uh, unable to consume the water in their houses, and they were like, well, why do I have to stay here? But lo and behold, there is a law here that says basically if if the uh, problem is not the fault of the landlord, then the person living there really has no recourse against the landlord. Their only recourse is against the, the state or whoever's controlling the water supply, the utility kind of thing. But that's definitely one of the examples of what i'm saying about the individuals people who are poor people of color persons of color in the united states living close to an environmental disaster and that's what we see constantly over and over again and that that has occurred in 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 in, 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 and it came more to light later on when uh, they noticed that some areas in michigan also had another Chemical, it—the name of it escapes me—but it was another chemical generated by chemical companies that was found in numerous communities all across Michigan. I'm so sorry for this.
0: Oh, of course.
1: Sorry about that. I'm on my computer, so no to, problem. Let me cut this phone off, and then mm-hmm. it won't connect. <laughs> so uh,
0: no sweat. Don't worry.
1: So uh, the the uh to go back to the point that's what mostly what i see is mm-hmm. is things like that and to me those things again go back to the lack of uh the, mm-hmm. we have this free market where this laissez faire environment of housing and of communities and even in general there's this there's this notion that if you just privatize it then the market will fix everything. Then, lo and behold, that's what ex- exactly what was going on in Flint, which was they were wanted to uh, leave the water to the private market. They wanted to shift it to some sort of private sort of setup, meaning like taking it out of control to a. They set up a new company that was going to run the water system in Flint, kind of thing. And that's exactly the kind of thing that gets that really puts the consumer the person me or you the ordinary citizen you know under under siege so to speak because we're now we have to have trust in individuals who have proven themselves over and over to be not driven by providing a safe place but they're driven more by the profit motive and it goes it goes back to the old thing about the housing where housing in the United States is there for profit motive. And that's why a lot of people like to get involved in it, Mm -hmm. as opposed to housing should be there, you know, where it's located, how it's, you know, how it's structured and everything should be designed for a safe and sanitary place for family and individuals to live. But that's not what we, that's not what we get. Mm -hmm. So, and that goes to the same for your question.
0: Mm hmm. So some background, I'll tell you a little bit about I grew up, I don't know if you've heard of, uh, I grew up in Bellport, New York, uh, South gotcha. Shore of Long Island. Gotcha. <laughs> um, I, I I grew up in uh, North Bellport and my school district was divided between by the railroad tracks, North Side, South Side. Um, and both my parents growing up were unemployed. Uh, so we grew up in uh, not the best part of town. Right. Um, and actually, the town landfill, the Brookhaven town landfill, was located just uh,
1: right. That's a cut, perfect like,
0: about a mile north of us. Yeah. Right. So, as growing up, I'd always, I never really noticed it. And coming to college and learned taking my environmental studies classes and stuff, I, I've started to ask one question, and that is how did it get like that? How, right? What is the course of it? How did we go from housing policies in the early 20th century to communities being separated by railroad tracks running through them and one the affluent side having the beachfront property and the other side having a landfill how did we get here
1: well there's probably a lot of things to tell the truth i mean the complexity of it is um I mean, a lot of people don't even understand that it's one point, everybody, almost nearly everybody in the United States, the vast majority of people in the United States were poor. And a lot of people don't even know that. I mean, the, I mean, Galbraith's book, John Kenneth Galbraith, The Economist's book, the, the Affluent Society goes all into that. How the United States reached this point, like in the 40s and 50s, where they had a chance really to actually kill poverty actually, they had, the, the country had so much money and so much wealth and so much going forward that it could actually, we could actually really wipe out poverty. Like we could empower like most of the citizens. And that wasn't the case always. So what happened in the 20th century was actually a really dramatic thing. I mean, they actually went through, they had housing policy. I mean, Roosevelt had a, had a housing policy. He wanted to make people owners of their homes and things like that. Want to make More Americans owners because you have ownership, you have wealth. So there was some, even with his flaws, he had a coherent policy. And then in the forties, they had another, they had more policies like that. And a lot of things used to break down to racial issues, meaning like we're going to separate ourselves from the blacks and the Hispanics. It's a lot. It was a lot of that going on in the United States. But at some point, I can tell you, at some point, it became also blacks and hispanics and then also the poor i mean because people got slowly slowly got disenfranchised by the changing of the economy and in the post you know post industrialism we're in we're in post industrialism for like decades now people think it's just new it's not new it's it's probably started in the probably started in the 50s and 60s where these companies decided we, we're going to go in another direction kind of thing. And then it became not only now to separate myself from the, from the blacks and the Hispanics, but separate myself from the, from the whites who didn't have any money either, because they didn't have any money and wealth anymore because they also been disenfranchised kind of thing. And I think that's what we are seeing more and more of. So what you probably saw was that kind of separation going on the working the, the affluent people, separating themselves from the working class which say they only need the, the white working class when they want to say look at those blacks over there that's when they really need the white working class they say hey look at them over there you don't want to live with them but they don't really want to be around the white working class either they know this they they notice they just don't want to admit it and that's kind of like what i've seen up here which is in, in this area in, in Michigan, which is a lot of that. There's a lot of disenfranchised uh, white working class individuals up here connected to various industries, some connected to the car industry, some connected to others. I mean, but all of them now are like mowing lawns, working at sandwich shops, You just working wherever they want, still struggling to get by, barely getting by now. They don't really have the good job like they had at the factories and the plants and things like that. So I think that that was by design. I think that's definitely by design. They, there's no more, there's no like redlining against a, there's not a redlining concept going on because redlining is now illegal, but there is a way where that was all set up. Like in with blacks, there was definitely redlining. They definitely redlined blacks out of it. But people don't realize that in redlining, there was also, that was the area where, that was just the area for undesirables. So they they probably have now, because of the way things have gone down, they probably have segregated themselves away from from the white working class as well. Like, Lansing is not the city where I do a lot of our work. It's not a really segregated city anymore. It's not like it used to be. It was a segregated city. But because of the way the economy changed when the plants closed the auto plants that they don't have as many plants as they used to, the neighborhoods are uh, are incredibly like kind of mixed, except for as you noted, except for the the upscale more affluent neighborhoods, those neighborhoods are mostly white, I would say over ninety percent most of the time, at least and I'm only giving you anecdotal anecdotal thoughts mm-hmm. on that but then you go to the, you go down into the city of Lansing in the various neighborhoods. It's just, it's, it's, you could have, you could have a Hispanic family living next to a white family and then a black family and then another, and then white families. It's not, it's not segregated because everybody down there knows we all struggling. We're all struggling just to get by. So that, that whole notion that I need, I can't, I can't segregate myself. This is all I can afford as well. So it's, that's kind of like what i see more and more. Although there's still areas where there are larger concentrations of black poor, but there there's concentrations of white poor now in the and they'll be living right next to the black poor. So it's it's interesting how you uh th- your observation on that. That's a really good point. Mm-hmm. But it, but it's, it's it's by design, it's by design government policy and state policy s- kind of set this up. We are very class stratified country now, as is pretty obvious to all of us. There's a class dynamic here that's way more obvious than it's ever been.
0: So just gonna switch lanes, switch gears for a minute. I'm curious to hear about your story uh, and your experience growing up and how that led you to not just become a lawyer and a professor, but also to become a poet at the same time.
1: <laughs> it's funny.
0: That that connection is pretty interesting to me. Right. How'd you get here?
1: I mean, so, I mean, I can, I grew up in Washington, D.C. I mean, I went to public school and then really? I, went, yeah, I went to public school until high school. Um, mm-hmm. I, I grew up in the city it was a government town It's everybody there almost it seemed was a civil servant my parents worked for the government the guy next door was a mailman the woman next door and her was a was a school teacher down the street was a guy who was he was an army sergeant it was just everybody there was a civil servant <laughs> so the notion of service was embedded in our embedded in us and it's kind of like what you want to do i wanted to serve be a good citizen and offer service, but I also had a chance to go to this school called uh, Archbishop Carroll High School, which is, which even though I grew up in a home where reading and literature was encouraged, that school really got me looking at literature as real thing and and really looking at the humanities as a real thing, you know the whole notion of history and politics and and music and art. And literature, all of that, could, is so so vitally important to a, a functioning society. The, the United States right now has seemed to forgotten the importance of those things. But I went there, and my t- I ran into a teacher who was just really uh, he was a Shakespeare, Ezra Pound expert, and he just I would say he kind of took me under his wing a little bit and told me that if I wanted to if I wanted to write, I could write. And things like that, and and so that part of it was that part of it was embedded in me at that point. And then I had another teacher, and they, at Carol, of course, you know, I don't know if you went to one of those Catholic schools. It's a Catholic school, but they they also made us do stuff like uh, you had to take religion. But it, but it, at Catholic school, religion is more like social justice. What are you going to do for the poor? You know, what I mean, what are you going to do? So I, we took classes in that. And it was an individual there um, who, who kind of imposed his his thoughts on me. And I thought they were very provocative. He used to teach us about why violence was wrong, why the Vietnam War was wrong, Martin Luther King, Gandhi. We should be learning all of this stuff in right in high school. So when I left high school, these things were still kind of, I would say they were kind of like churning inside me and even though i didn't even though it took me a while to go to go to undergrad and then figure think about what i wanted to do that's kind of like was was one of the building blocks and then the second building block was I, I went to this i was i was in undergrad during the the apartheid years i don't know if you remember those you might be not as old as me i don't know but the apartheid was a big big issue in the late 80s student You know, students were trying to get their colleges to divest their holdings, to bring the regime to its to its knees kind of thing. And that also was another influence on me, the whole notion of you could you know, you had a you had a responsibility to try to change the world you lived in as you passed through it kind of thing. So that's that's what led me to law school and wanting to do. A specific kind of law, which was social justice, trying to help poor people uh, not be evicted, try to help people manage their lives better as the as the corporate forces came mashing down on them. So that's all of that was all one thing for me, and the, and the poetry began to reflect that. What I wrote about was about that, and then what I was doing. And I, and I always felt like that. A lot of writers say I'm a I'm a I want to be a witness. I want to be a witness. And I always felt like if you want to be a witness, you should get involved. I mean, just get involved. So I felt like I should get involved as well, and that's what led me to this career. And I, and at first I was worried because it was a it, I was like this, these seem like they don't mean make any sense. <laughs> seem like you know law law writing. Is vastly different from literature. I will admit, and so mm-hmm. I just, but I just went ahead and just and just let it go, let it take its course. Like the poet William Carlos Williams was a medical doctor. I felt like if he can be a medical doctor and a poet, then I can be a lawyer and a poet. So I, that's what I went with, and now it is, it's it's good for me. I would say now I I like it. I, mm-hmm. I'm glad that I went ahead and stuck with it, and so it's. It's I'm much more comfortable with both titles now.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a incredible story. That's pretty <laughs> impressive the way you do that. I it's it's an interesting aspect uh, that you have such um, your identity is so multifaceted, and I really appreciate that. Um, oh yeah, thanks. Uh, I appreciate so, it.
1: thanks you very much.
0: Of course. Uh, so my. Last question for you, uh, before we're done here today, um, is just looking forward. If you could speak anecdotally from your experiences, how do we fix some of the issues that we've talked about, and how do you want to use your poetry and that aspect of your identity to do that?
1: Yeah, great question. So um like i mean i guess i was a i guess i'm an idealist and i used to think about the big picture a lot and i'm pretty sure you probably do too you probably have to think about the big picture (laughs) i know so i think about this still think about the big picture but i feel like the small picture also matters so i feel like what i'm doing now is you know not necessarily good enough not necessarily good enough but i but to maintain what I'm doing is still important to save individuals from, from what could happen to them, an eviction. That's an important thing, I feel. But I don't feel like that's the solution to what we're doing now. If you want me to say like, the two main things you and I discussed, which was housing, the problem with housing, and then the problem with the environment, like the environmental issues that could impact people in their housing. I just really believe we need a more regulated, more public focused, more humane system overall. I think like the private we've had a long long run here where capitalism has has gone unchecked, so to speak. Housing is the regulation is very is very weak. I would say it's it's kind of rudimentary. It's same thing on the environment. I mean, the EPA and agencies like that are under total assault and attack. I just think we, when it comes to these kind of issues, housing and the conditions where you live, I think we need much more rigid control of those. Uh, we need some, and we need leadership. We definitely need leadership. The United States might need to change directions, but it'll have to be a strong person who can convince everybody collectively that we need to change directions. Like become a country again with a housing policy and an environmental policy to go along with that and, and really set goals that these things must happen. They definitely set those goals in corporate America. I can tell you that. These things should happen over the next 10 years. Instead of just this is haphazard, all over the place policy that makes no sense. You need, you need a heavier. I'm not talking about like a heavy hand or anything like that. It just means like it needs to be more focused on housing. Is sure it's there for people to make a profit, so so it can pay for itself. But mostly, it should be there so people can live in a humane, uh, in a humane. Communities and neighborhoods where human beings can thrive and people feel safe, people feel like where they live is not polluted, as you you and I discuss and not they're not living next to chemicals or they don't have dirty water. These things are heavily under the public's eye, that kind of thing. that's that's kind of like what we have to move towards. We've had we've tried it the other way, which is the free market, and it's a disaster. Everybody knows that. So let's try the other. Let's try the other way where we have more, where the public has more control, and these corporations can back off. And I don't know what they'll do, but they they, they need to just back off.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of Pod for the Planet. As always, drop a like, give us five stars, and subscribe for more content. Tell your friends, tell your parents, tell everyone you know about us. Leave a comment and send us your questions. Thanks for listening.